Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and... I'm going to do it. I'm going to break one of my cardinal rules. You know how, remember in Star Trek, the prime directive, do not interfere with, uh, you know, the, don't interfere with the governance or the, the basic, uh, basically don't interfere with other, other planets. Let them, let them advance as they're going to. Don't go in there and teach them how to teleport or whatever. Well, my prime directive is stay as far away from politics as you can. But I'm going to dive right in this morning, and uh, I didn't watch the Democratic debate last night. It was round two from Detroit, but I've caught some highlights. Started with getting some updates. Uh, forgot to silence my phone, so Twitter was uh, thankfully uh, sending me some little updates from time to time. I finally went, okay, what? What is it that's so important? And I watched a couple of clips that uh, that actually caught my attention. In fact, I got very little sleep as a result because it was like, ooh, well, that's kind of interesting. Now, I'm not likely to vote for any Democratic candidate. At least, you know, I, I don't I don't vote party lines. I don't I don't really I don't see anybody in either one of the parties right now, Republican or Democrat, that is offering any meaningful alternative to more of what you've been getting good and hard for the last, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years. But I'm going to tell you, I was impressed with some of the questions that were being asked or some of the observations being made, because those uh, those Democrats, at least a good number of them, spent very little time attacking Donald J. Trump and a lot more time attacking one another. And I think that it's actually a good thing because it, it brought a few things forward that that uh, will probably be advantageous, at least to the Republicans come 2020. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard. There was an article that was published yesterday on intellectualtakeout.org. In fact, it was first published on the American Conservative by uh, W. James Antle III. And it's called Tulsi's Last Stand. And I'm going to share that with you. And then I, then we're going to go through what uh, Tulsi Gabbard actually did in the course of last night's debate. And if this was her last stand, I think she, she may have uh, come up on top. So here's what uh, James Antle had to say. He said it was already one of the most memorable moments of the Democratic presidential debates in this young election cycle. Young? Really? Seriously? It feels like it's been going on for 10 years. Anyway, leaders as disparate as President Obama and President Trump have both said they want to end U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, but it isn't over for America, observed moderator Rachel Maddow. Why isn't it over? She asked. Why can't presidents of very different parties and very different temperaments get us out of there? And how could you? Now, this was in the previous Democratic debate a few weeks ago. Representative Tim Ryan of Ohio responded with talking points that could have been ripped out of a George W. Bush speech circa 2004. The lesson that I've learned over the years is that you have to stay engaged in these situations, he said, later adding, whether we're talking about Central America, whether we're talking about Iran, whether we're talking about Afghanistan, we have got to be completely engaged. That does kind of sound like W. Now, Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii was having none of it. Is that what you will tell the parents of those two soldiers who were just killed in Afghanistan? Well, we just have to be engaged, she asked a sputtering Ryan. 
As a soldier, she said, I will tell you that answer is unacceptable. We have to bring our troops home from Afghanistan. End quote. Now, Gabbard noted she had joined the military to fight those who attacked us on 9-11, not to nation build indefinitely in Afghanistan. And she pointed out the perfidy of Saudi Arabia. Some liken Gabbard's rebuke of Ryan to the famous 2007 exchange between Ron Paul and Rudy Giuliani, except Paul, then a relatively unknown congressman from Texas, was speaking truth to power against America's mayor and the national GOP frontrunner. Gabbard is pulling at 0.8% in the national real clear politics average. She was challenging someone who's at 0.3%. Ryan's asterisk presidency or candidacy rather is unsurprising. But Gabbard has been perhaps the most interesting Democrat running for president. And Mr. Antle says uh, Wednesday night could be her last stand. Now, again, this was written before last night's debate. He pointed out she gets to share the stage with frontrunner Joe Biden, like Hillary Clinton, a vote for the Iraq war. There is no guarantee she'll get another opportunity. The eligibility criteria for subsequent debates is more stringent and she has yet to qualify. The huge Democratic field has been a bust of the more than 20 declared presidential candidates. Only seven are polling at 2% or more in the national averages. Two more, Senators Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar, are polling at, at least that well in Iowa. Only four candidates are consistently polling in double digits. Biden, who recovered from his early debate stumbles and remains comfortably in the lead. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who has nevertheless mostly failed to recapture his 2016 magic. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, who seems ascendant. And Senator Kamala Harris of California, potentially the main threat to Biden's rock-solid black support. Okay, a quick aside here. If there was a loser in last night's debate for those who were keeping score, Kamala Harris was probably that loser. And it was because of Gabby Tulsard. Mr. Antle points out that low polling candidates have still managed to have an impact. Some like former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Juli Julian uh, Castro helped coax contenders likelier to win the nomination to the left on immigration. We've thus seen Democrats raise their hands in support of decriminalizing uh, illegal border crossings in the midst of a migrant crisis, not entirely of the Trump administration's making, expanding Medicare to cover everyone, even at the expense of private health insurance, and ensuring that everyone includes illegal immigrants. Transgender abortions, also at taxpayer expense, have also come up. Now, Gabbard has so far been unable to penetrate this madness, despite being young, she's 38, attractive, telegenic, a military veteran, a woman of color, and an articulate, passionate opponent of the regime change wars that have brought our country so much pain. While reliably progressive, she has occasionally reached across the political divide on issues like religious liberty and big tech censorship, a potent combination that could prove more responsive to Trump voters' concerns than what we've heard from her neocon light interloker, interlocutor from Youngstown. None of this seems to matter in a Democratic Party that cares more about wokeness than war. In fact, Gabbard's conservative fans, the view brought up Ann Coulter, are often held against her, as is her failure to go all in on Trump-Russia, which, by the way, that is, that is the mantra today. Well, this idea that, uh, that she destroyed Kamala Harris, that is just, uh, that's a bunch of Russian bots. So, so that's the, the new thing. You disagree with me, you're either a Russian bot, or if you're really making your case, you're racist. I'm just filing this away for future use, so you've been warned. Don't disagree with me, and don't prove me wrong, or 
you know, you may be outed as a racist Russian bot. All right, back to the story. 95 Democrats stand ready to impeach Trump over mean tweets with nary a peep over the near bombing of Iran or the active thwarting of Congress's will on Yemen. Now, that's not to say that no one else is running on sound, uh, running his sound on foreign policy. Bernie has realist advisors, and it took real courage for Warren to back Trump's abortive withdrawals from Afghanistan and Syria. And it required a Democratic House to advance the bipartisan Yemen resolution. But none of them are basing their campaigns on it in the same way that Gabbard has. Nor do any of them better represent our military veterans' sharp turn against forever war, arguably the most important public opinion trend of our time. Liberals remain skeptical of Gabbard's turn away from social conservatism, which admittedly went far beyond sincerely opposing gay marriage, while Barack Obama was merely pretending to do so, which she attributes to aloha. In meeting with Bashar al-Bassad, she hurt her credibility as a foe of the Syria intervention, failing to realize that doves are held to a higher standard on these matters than hawks. That's true. A saner Democratic Party might realize the chances are far greater that their nominee will be a covert hawk rather than a secret right-winger. Only time will tell if vestiges of that party still exist. Again, this is from W. James Antle III, originally published on the American Conservative website. So we're going to take a break here in about a minute, but when we come back, I'm going to play with you, play for you a couple of lowlights and highlights of an exchange between Tulsi Gabbard and Kamala Harris. And I'm actually, I'm going to further break my prime directive and spend a little bit of time talking about Kamala Harris. She is a cop who wants to be president. And if that sounds like I'm, I'm saying it in kind of a dangerous way, well, really? Is that, are you trying to make it sound like that's a bad thing? Yeah, actually I am. <laughs> I don't think we, we do not need a president with the gotcha mentality. But wait till you hear how Kamala Harris was taken to task by Tulsi Gabbard in last night's Democratic debate. It's, uh, it's pretty impressive. In fact, it's uh, I, I can see why there are people saying, well, she's uh, you know, she's she's using Republican talking points. They're actually kind of concerned, maybe even a little bit scared. But while the Democrats are busy dismantling one another, <laughs> I guess that's a good thing. I just wish all this madness would would come to an end. By the way, later in the show, we're going to talk about something Japan does that we might consider doing. How about a 12 day election cycle rather than this uh, endless one that starts the day after the election hey welcome back to loving liberty i'm brian hyde i'm breaking format this morning why this is as legendary as Back in the days, I was working on an adult standard station, you know, playing things like, I don't know, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, <laughs> Bobby Goldsboro, and a friend of mine just just had to, uh, he, he had to bring out to Pink Floyd's then brand new uh, Momentary Lapse of Reason album to play a song called On the Turning Away. And it was a gentle ballad, but man, it had some soaring David Gilmore guitar, and I'll just never forget my friend's 
surreptitiously slipping this into the lineup on this station that was, you know, a favorite among the folks down at the uh, nursing home and saying, please, just just give it a chance. You got to listen to this. Song. You just got to hear this. It's so good. Well, in that same vein, I am breaking format and I'm talking politics this morning, specifically talking about the Democratic debate last night. I didn't watch it. Believe it or not, I actually had better things to do that involved, you know, hanging out with my boys and bonding with them. And it was actually, I think my time was well spent. But I caught some of the highlights. And I have to say, Tulsi Gabbard, for whatever whatever faults one may assign to her, actually appeared to be a person of integrity up on that stage last night. But I want you to hear this in, in her own words as she takes Kamala Harris to task. Check out this exchange. Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president. But I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. Thank you, Congresswoman. Uh, Senator Harris, your response. As the elected attorney general of California, I did the work of significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work of being in the position to use the power that I had to reform a system that is badly in need of reform. That is why we created initiatives that were about reentering former offenders and getting them counseling. It is why and because I know that criminal justice Thank system you, is Senator. so broken that I am an advocate for what Thank we you, need Senator. to do to your, not only decriminalize but legalize marijuana in the United States. I want to, I want to bring uh, Congresswoman uh, Gabbard back in. Your response. The bottom line is, Senator Harris, when you were in a position to make a difference and an impact in these people's lives, you did not. And worse yet, in the case of those who were on death row, innocent people, you actually blocked evidence from being revealed that would have freed them until you were forced to do so. There is no excuse for that. And the people who suffered under your reign as prosecutor, you owe them an apology. Senator Harris. My entire career, I have been opposed, personally opposed to the death penalty, and that has never changed. And I dare anybody who is in a position to make that decision, to face the people I have faced, to say, I will not seek the death penalty. That is my background. That is my work. I am proud of it. I think you can judge people by when they are under fire, and it's not about some fancy opinion on a stage, but when they're in the position to actually make a decision, what do they do? When I was in the position of having to decide whether or not to seek a death penalty on cases I prosecuted, I made a very difficult decision that was not popular to not seek the death penalty. History shows that, and I am proud of those decisions. Yeah, but what about the points about the people you screwed over and put in jail or put in prison for, for minor marijuana offenses while you sat there and yucked it up on the radio with a couple of DJs about how, yeah, I was listening to Tupac and Snoop Dogg, yeah, when they asked you if you smoked marijuana. What a hypocrite. 
She is a consummate politician. I'll give Kamala Harris that. She she did not address directly any of Tulsi Gabbard's points. But isn't it interesting? Um, and I, I'm just looking at a couple of them. CNN, probably the most prominent example, circling the wagons around Kamala Harris. And, and I know Anderson Cooper was talking with Tulsi Gabbard. One of the big questions he kept going back to, well, uh, are you a Bashar, Bashar Assad apologist? What does that have to do with the misuse of law in America? Or pointing out that uh, Kamala Harris uh, believes in one set of laws for the little people and another for those who work in government. She did not come off looking good. Remember how last time in the debate she kind of took Joe Biden to task and, you know, gave the, the virtue signal. Well, busing is racist and you supported people who supported busing. And therefore, I just have to believe that you might be a racist. She played it up and she actually got a pretty good bounce from it. She got no such bounce from this. So I don't know. It's, I, I want to talk a little bit about Kamala Harris just because there's a great article on, on reason. This is from Elizabeth Nolan Brown. Kamala Harris is a cop who wants to be president. And Elizabeth Nolan Brown says in the years since former attorney, California Attorney General Kamala Harris entered national public life, first as a U.S. senator, now as a leading candidate for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination. One strain of criticism has surfaced again and again, and it can be captured in just five words. Kamala Harris is a cop. The phrase which the candidate's critics use frequently is meant to conjure more than just Harris's history as a hard-nosed San Francisco prosecutor. It's colloquial. To label someone a cop in this way is never to invoke the best behavior one might expect from police officers. It implies that the person is a bully, a bootlicker, a professional tattler, the sort of person who shuts down an unauthorized lemonade stand run by kids. A cop in this context is someone who will always defer to authority and the status quo. Someone who is unaccountable and not to be trusted. Calling someone a cop invokes the worst sort of police overreach, a legalistic authoritarianism that exists for its own sake. During her 28-year tenure as a county prosecutor, district attorney, and state attorney general, Harris proved quite willing to live up to the epithet. In the public eye, she spoke of racial justice and liberal values, bolstering her cred as one of the Democratic Party's rising stars. But behind closed doors, she repeatedly fought for more aggressive prosecution, not just of violent criminals, but of people who committed misdemeanors and quality-of-life crimes. Every attorney general fights for state power and police prerogatives. It's part of the job. But over and over again, Harris went beyond the call of duty, fighting for harsher sentences, larger bail requirements, longer prison terms, more prosecution of petty crimes, greater criminal justice involvement in low-income and minority communities, less due process for people in the system, less transparency, and less accountability for bad cops. In the early days of her presidential campaign, Harris has sought to define herself as a liberal reformer who's kept up with the times. But a review of her career shows a direct or a distinct rather penchant for power seeking and an illiberal disposition in which no offense is small or harmless enough to warrant lenience from the state. Now she wants to bring that approach to the highest office in the land. Now, as scary as that may sound to some people who are thinking, oh, that sounds like something a Russian bot would say. I don't see anything that is less than factual in those words. 
as scary as those words may sound, I don't think that's hyper that's hyperbolic. I think that's a pretty accurate description. The article, by the way, goes on to to list you know her her pedigree of this is where she came from. This is this is how she got to where she is today. And it goes into some detail. Talking about how she campaigned on promises to avoid seeking capital punishment, to reform the use of enhanced sentencing, to rely on treatment and diversion programs rather than prison terms for nonviolent drug offenders, and generally taking a holistic approach to crime. But once she was in office, she turned around and she would immediately reverse or revise many of her previously stated principles. Look, I'm, I'm not even looking at this and saying, yeah, well, you know, she's a Democrat. That's why she shouldn't be president. I'm looking at it and saying of all the authoritarians who are running for president, this one seems to be the most open about that streak of authoritarianism. Are we sure that's a good idea to put someone like that in power? Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right. I feel like I had to go uh, swig some dish soap just to, to get the taste of politics out of my mouth. Nasty stuff. I will post uh, this article about Kamala, Car- Kamala Harris is a cop who wants to be president. I'll post it in the show notes on the, the podcast. I think it's worth checking out. She is considered one of the people to beat. And I have to say, it's uh, it's kind of satisfying to, to see the video clips of her feet being held to the fire for actual misdeeds that she done. And all she can do is sputter. I was doing my job and I, I'm proud of my record. You know what would be really interesting? And, and I got to tip my hat to Connor Boyack for, for suggesting this. If Donald Trump wanted to really steal some thunder from the Democrats... Especially if Kamala Harris is the one who gets the nod for the Democratic nomination to run for president. I mean, now think about it from from the from the standpoint of the Democrats. Trump is is embroiled in, you know, this Twitter controversy. His his tweets are considered racist. See, and that's from the objective, non slanted, non spun press. Uh huh. Yeah. They're quickly throwing out labels. So they've already labeled him as as hostile to women, hostile to people of color, a bigot, a racist. So run a woman of color against him. Hmm. She'd be 10 feet tall and bulletproof, right? Anything he said, anything at all, even if he complimented her, that's a very nice dress you're wearing. Well, the president was coming on to this uh, candidate. Oh, wow, he's misogynist now. It's, uh, you know, he... (laughs) He couldn't win, she couldn't lose, at least in the, in the court of social justice opinion. But if Trump really wanted to take the wind right out of her sails, what he could do is just simply see to it that uh, marijuana is decriminalized at the federal level. Now, I know there are those who would be like, nah, easy, Brian. The world could fall apart at the seams if we did something like that. Let me just remind you that uh, marijuana was perfectly legal prior to 1914. 
Whether you grew it, whether you smoked it, whether you uh, made a tincture out of it or a topical ointment or something like that, that was your business. You could go to the drugstore. You could buy tincture of cannabis. You could buy various uh, you know, medications with cannabis in it. No prescription required. In fact, let's take it one step further. You could also go get pharmaceutical-grade cocaine without a prescription. You could get heroin. You could get tincture of opium. Serious narcotics. But we forget that. Let's not pretend that, well, you know, the only thing that's keeping us from teetering over the edge of the cliff is the fact that we made weed illegal. The, the percentage of people who will abuse any type of substance, be it alcohol, opiates, pot, prescription drugs, whatever it may be, has always been right around 3%. Don't take my word for it. Take a look at a, a chart showing what is the addiction rate? What is the abuse rate of substances like this? It stays right about 3%. And you can go clear back. Go back to, to when there were no laws, you know, governing or controlling these substances, particularly the naturally occurring ones. It was still pretty consistent. People would abuse it at about 3% of the population would, would engage in abusive use of these substances. The war on drugs came along in the early 70s. And then that rate of abuse shifted. Not at all. It stayed exactly where it was. And I only bring this up to prove the point. It's not to say that, you know, drugs are good, okay? They're not. Especially if they're being abused. But all that government intervention, the trillions of dollars spent, the, the millions of lives upended in an effort to prohibit, via prohibition, people from accessing or ingesting substances that somebody didn't approve of. And a politician put it on paper. Well, this is wrong. See, true criminal behavior where somebody actually victimizes another person, we've covered every possible angle. But when someone is engaging in a vice in which they themselves are primarily the victim, well, that's where we justify these prohibitive laws. So if Trump were to end federal prohibition on marijuana, maybe kick it back to the states. That would be the smart thing to do. Let the states make those decisions. Now, I guarantee you, Utah would not be one of the states saying, you recreational pot. They just wouldn't do it. Probably a lot of the Bible Belt states would have a hard time with that as well. And other states, California, Nevada, Washington, Oregon, basically all the ones that have already de facto made it legal would continue to do so. It hasn't brought their society to an end. Yeah, there are some negative side effects. You know what? That's just part of what happens when people are allowed to exercise their freedom. But the negative side effects of too much freedom are always preferable to the negative side effects of not enough freedom. Because not enough freedom tends to be applied with this blanket approach that unfortunately puts everybody in preemptive handcuffs in the name of, we're going to stop you from doing anything wrong, even if you weren't intending to in the first place, but just in case, you can't do something wrong, or at least what is considered wrong. So if Trump wanted to really steal the thunder of the Democrats, particularly Kamala Harris, legalize marijuana. What could she do? What could she say? <laughs> She'd be sitting there sputtering about social justice issues. All right. 
I'm sorry. That was that was probably more of a rant than than I intended. But one of the reasons I'm so turned off by politics is it really comes down to people who seek power for its own sake. And there are plenty of Republicans who do this. There are plenty of Democrats. Um, There was a great uh, I got to find this for you. There were were a couple of uh, commentators from the uh, Foundation for Economic Education. Anthony Davies and and James Harrigan. And they did a, a marvelous job of pointing out the things that weren't talked about in last night's debate. This is important. This is the kind of thing we need to, to be aware of. Yeah, check this out. This, this is a series of screenshots. James Harrigan said, Kamala Harris knows better than to make a gender pay gap argument. And she just proved it by pointing to the 1963 Equal Pay Act. If evil capitalists could pay women 80 cents on the male dollar, there would be lawsuits aplenty and wholesale male unemployment. We see neither. And then Anthony Davies. This feels less like a debate than that the viewers have been cast in the role of a mall Santa. Candidates take turns saying what they want for Christmas. Nowhere has any one of them said anything about how we might pay for all the stuff they want. Here's another one from James Harrigan. The so-called moderators of the Democratic debate 2020 are cheerleaders. They should ask a hard question, say, about the federal debt or the health of Social Security. This is proof positive that this format is fundamentally flawed. Anthony Davies responds, come on, CNN, the government's $22 trillion in debt. Social Security and Medicare are going insolvent. The candidates all talk about new major programs. Will no one ask them how we can afford what we already have, let alone more? And James Harrigan points out Andrew Yang might be the only Democrat in the U.S. who can promise everyone $1,000 a month only to get a consistent 1% support. And and one more note here from Anthony Davies. I'll give Andrew Yang credit for doing openly and more efficiently what all other politicians do surreptitiously. He's offering to buy your votes. And apparently they're worth $1,000 a month each. <laughs> all right. One final one here from James Harrigan. Well, it's over. And the debt was not mentioned, nor was Social Security's impending insolvency. On the plus side, no one got to the Koch brothers or Citizens United either. Biden did well, as did Gabbard. Castro came in on the second half, too. Everyone else was disappointing. Now, James Harrigan and Anthony Davies host the Words and Numbers podcast, which you can access on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Well worth your time. These are two very intelligent guys who have uh, they've got a lot of depth. And frankly, I think they're right on. But look, my point here is they bear out. Something that I have noticed for years and that I've, I've tried to, to, to bring up over the years. You learn more by what the candidates cannot or will not discuss in these debates than you do by the topics that they do bounce around. I mean, come on. The questions are very carefully chosen. Nobody's asking hard questions. These are softball, you know, Barbara Walters type. If you were a type of breakfast cereal, what kind of cereal would you prefer to be? Nothing of substance. It's, it's all fluff and flash. 
This is one of the reasons why I absolutely have no ill feelings and I don't hold any kind of a grudge against someone who says, politics sucks. I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to lend legitimacy to a system where that's the best that we have to choose from. I'm not telling you not to vote, but I'm telling you the people who choose not to. I'm not sure that they're so out of step as some might make them out to be. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and I apologize. Because for all my vaunted values that prevent me from talking about lowly things like politics, I'm neck deep in them today, and, uh, and, and I'm feeling kind of animated as a result. I'm really not a political junkie, but uh, man, some of this stuff is so frustrating. Just because it, it becomes the normal. This is, this is the way we see things. Uh, something that was pointed out to me that, that I thought to, I thought this was a very interesting uh, comparison here. 432 days prior to the election, 158 days before the Iowa caucuses. That was yesterday. As millions of Americans tuned in for the second round of Democratic debates. Does that seem like an unusually long time to be contemplating candidates? There's a great article from theconversation.com, and the author is Rachel Caulfield, and she points out a couple of things that I found just fascinating. By comparison, Canadian election campaigns are just 50 days. They average 50 days. In France, candidates only have two weeks to campaign. Japanese law restricts campaigns to a meager 12 days. Now, these countries all give more power than the U.S. does to their legislative branch, which may explain the limited attention to the selection selection of their chief executive. But Mexico, which, like the U.S., has a presidential system, still only allows 90 days for its presidential campaigns, with a 60-day preseason the equivalent of our nomination campaign. So by all accounts, the article says the U.S. has exceptionally long elections and they just keep getting longer. In fact, Rachel Caulfield says, as a political scientist living in Iowa, I'm acutely aware of how long the modern presidential campaign has become. And it wasn't always this way. The seemingly interminable presidential campaign is a modern phenomenon. It originated out of widespread frustration with the control that national parties used to wield over the selection of candidates. But changes to election procedures, along with media coverage that started to depict the election as a horse race, have also contributed to the trend. And she does a very good job of spelling out how we got to where we are today. So just a century ago, you had Warren Harding announce his successful candidacy 321 days before the 1920 election. This cycle, Maryland Congressman John Delaney announced his White House bid a record 1194 days before election. So it's not a joke to say that, yeah, you know, essentially what we do is the campaign kicks off the day after election day. And it seems like that's, uh, that's exactly where it's going. By the way, let's talk about Russian election meddling for just a moment. Great article from Jacob Solom. This was on Reason. The puny reality of Russian election meddling. He says if Moscow aimed to sow chaos, it needed a much bigger budget. 
He says, for years now, we've been hearing that Russia meddled in the 2016 presidential election. And as much as Donald Trump might want to deny it because of the implication that a foreign power helped him defeat Hillary Clinton, the evidence that Russian agents tried to influence the election, or at least the debate surrounding it, seems clear. Now, whether they succeeded in doing so, that's an entirely different question. And while we may never have a definitive answer, clear thinking about the issue requires distinguishing between different kinds of meddling some of which are more troubling than others. Now, the biggest threat comes from attempts to directly alter vote tallies. According to a bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee report published last week, the Russian government directed extensive activity beginning in at least 2014 and carrying into at least 2017 against U.S. election infrastructure at the state and local level. Now, Russia's motive is unclear. It may have been probing vulnerabilities in voting systems to exploit later, the report says, or Moscow may have sought to undermine confidence in the 2016 U.S. election simply through the discovery of their activity. In any case, the committee found no evidence that vote tallies were altered or that voter registry files were deleted or modified. And while that conclusion is reassuring, it's hardly cause for complacency about securing the systems we use to determine which candidates voters actually favored. Now, another kind of meddling also involves hacking, but here the aim is to uncover information that might influence voters, as with the emails stolen from the Democratic National Committee and Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta. While such activity is and should be treated as a crime, the results are not unambiguously bad for American democracy, provided the information is accurate and relevant. The third kind of meddling, social media activity aimed at reinforcing political divisions or favoring one candidate over another, is also largely illegal, violating statutes dealing with fraud and foreign campaign contributions. But it's otherwise virtually indistinguishable from what Americans do on their own. And it seems quite unlikely that it had any measurable impact on the election results. According to the report that former special counsel Robert Mueller issued last March, the Internet Research Agency, or IRA, an organization linked to the Russian government, had the ability to reach millions of U.S. persons through their social media accounts. But the same could be said of many online information sources. And the ability to reach is not the same as the ability to persuade. Some more numbers from the Mueller report help put the issue into perspective. Between January 2015 and August of 2017, Facebook identified 470 IRA-controlled accounts out of more than 1 billion active daily users. The IRA purchased over 3,500 advertisements, the report says, and the expenditures totaled approximately $100,000. Oh my goodness! Why, that's nearly 0.0004% of Facebook's ad revenue in 2016. Wow. Twitter identified 3,814 IRA-controlled Twitter accounts, which represents close to 0% of active daily users, even if some of the accounts had, had tens of thousands of followers. As the report says, that's a drop in the bucket. The story similar on Instagram, 170 accounts out of half a billion active monthly users in 2016 and YouTube 43 hours total versus 300 hours uploaded per minute. Now, don't forget the rallies. The Mueller report says the Russians, Russians posing as Americans managed to instigate dozens of pro-Trump rallies or anti-Clinton rallies in the run up to the election, some of which attracted few, if any, participants, while others drew <gasps> hundreds. 
Now, Trump alone held 323 rallies, attended by a total of 1.4 million people during his campaign. Russia tried to sow chaos, says the New York Times. Well, if that was its goal, it needed a much bigger budget. Not only were these Russian efforts to influence the election minuscule, they were effective only to the extent that they actually changed people's voting behavior. So while sophisticated security measures may be necessary to ward off Russian hackers, all it takes to combat Russian propagandists is a brain. I don't think I've seen a more succinct way of putting it. And this is one of the reasons why I would invite you to be a skeptic. And I mean skeptical to the point that you have to ask yourself, is this really even worth my my attention to get all wound up in what's going on with the election cycle? I understand it's interesting. And and for a lot of people, it may actually be a pretty um, decent escape from the day-to-day ho-hum, you know, here's what's going on in life stuff. Coming up in the next hour of Loving Liberty, I want to pose a little challenge to you. And this is, this is not, I, I hope, I hope it doesn't come off as, you know, you need to be feeling guilty. Because I think guilt is a terrible agent of motivation. And I, I don't want that to be the, the uh, driving power that makes you, uh, you know, consider, should I change because I feel so guilty or bad about myself? But I want to share some thoughts with you about uh, whether or it's, it's better to change the world instead of trying to rule the world. And I feel like this probably is a message that has a greater likelihood of getting through now than it will as we get closer and closer to November of 2020. If, if past performance is anything on which to, to, to judge where we might go, you know, a, a year or so from now, I fully expect the hysteria is only going to get worse. In fact, it, it may be an unprecedented level of worse by the time we get there. I don't know what other complications may arise. I don't know what other intrigue we may be subject to. But I have a feeling that uh, the closer we get to November 2020, things are likely to get pretty intense. If you're not in the habit of thinking clearly and independently now and, and committed to maintaining at least some degree of aloofness so you can maintain your, your uh, clear and independent thought, it's going to be a rough ride next year. And you might be surprised at uh, where those tides of opinion can carry you. All right, we've got to take a real quick break here. We will check in for the latest news headlines. And when we come back, we'll talk about changing the world instead of trying to rule it. I've got a couple other fun, fun things that uh, hopefully will add value to uh, the way you see the world and what you're doing. This is Loving Liberty, and you are listening to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 